Hi, thanks. I wanted to start um, and welcome you all for coming in on such a beautiful afternoon um, to hear this panel. Um, my name is Christina Paxson. Um, I direct the Center for Health and Wellbeing, which is one of the two co-sponsors for this panel. The other is the Prince of AIDS Initiative. Um, and I also wanted to acknowledge the two student representatives who helped put this panel together, um, Hung Kang and Alex Connell, and of course Rachel Toby, who has been doing a lot of work on this whole um, weekend. Um, let me briefly introduce our panelists and then say something about the topic. Um, we have four uh, very uh, good and interesting panelists. Um, James Love, who is sitting here, um, has worked for the Center for the Study of Responsive Law since 1990. And since 90, 1995, he's been the director of the Consumer Project on Technology. He specializes on interests on issues related to intellectual property policies, and most recently he's been very involved with issues related to HIV-AIDS. Um, Jeffrey Sturcio, who is right on my right, right here, is Vice President um, External Affairs at Merck and Company. Um, he is responsible for the development, coordination, and implementation of a range of health policy and communications initiatives for Europe, Middle East, and Africa. Rachel Cohen is right here, directs the Access to Essential medicine, um, Medicines campaign um, for MSF in the U.S. She represents MSF on advocacy issues relating to ensuring equitable access to effective and affordable medicines for people in developing countries. And then finally, we have um, Mike Shearer, who some of the students here may know. Um, he is the Aetna Professor Emeritus at the Kennedy School of Government. Um, recently, he's been a visiting professor at Princeton University in the Woodrow Wilson School. He's an economist, and his research specialties are industrial economics and the economics of technological change. Um, and he is also very involved in issues related to intellectual property. Let me just tell you very briefly about the topic of this panel before I turn it over to um, people who know more about it than I do. Um, the topic of the panel is access versus incentives for HIV-AIDS drugs. Um, the, the, this issue, I think, is undeniably important. What we've seen over the past four years are fairly dramatic price declines for drug therapies. Um, yet, when you look at the people who are not covered, I think the, the importance of the issue is, is further highlighted. For example, I was looking at some UNA statistics. Um, they estimate that about in one region where HIV-AIDS is um, particularly severe, about 50,000 people in sub-Saharan Africa were receiving treatment at the end of 2002. That may have improved since then. But in that year, there were 2.4 million AIDS deaths. So the, the fraction of people who are being treated relative to the fraction of infections is very low. Um, given those sorts of statistics, it's very difficult for anyone, and I think anyone on this panel would not want to make the argument that expanded access to medicines is not a very good thing. The important question, it seems to me, is how to expand access at the same time that we maintain and even increase incentives for creating new and more effective medicines. Um, this is a question that's been of great interest to NGOs who have been very involved in um, um, advocating for policies for lower prices and greater access to pharmaceutical firms that are in the business of creating and marketing new drugs and are also increasingly involved in access issues and um, health issues in um, affected nations, as we'll hear about um, Merck's, some of Merck's activities. Um, it's obviously of interest to governments who are grappling with what are, is really an enormous public health crisis. 
And obviously, it's also of great interest to current potential consumers of these medicines, the sick people whose lives may depend on these products. Um, I posed two questions to the panelists, and they can feel free to focus on these or not as they want. Um, the first question is, how will the drop in ARV prices influence access to medicines, R&D, NGO action against pharmaceutical firms, and government protection of intellectual property rights in the future? And then the second question, which I think is, is more speculative but maybe more interesting, is what policies are most likely to expand access to drugs while at the same time preserving and increasing incentives for R&D and new technologies in the future? So that's what I hope we will hear about. We do need to end by 4.20. I want to save time for discussions and comments. So I've asked each of the panelists to lead off with a 10, 10 to 12, maybe 15-minute presentation, and then we'll um, have time to open it up. Thank you. Um, so the first person who is speaking is Jamie Love. Thank you very much. You're welcome. And um, do I tell somebody to do, I do the, how do I? How do you do this? Yeah, I do it from here. I'll yeah. do it myself. Okay, there, it not, should be on the desktop. That's fine. And I can it better pop up or else somebody else will figure it out. <laughs> okay. Um, there we go. Well, this, this is very, very impressive. It just, just works like magic. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. Um, well, I'm, I work for a small NGO. Uh, we have um, right now about six employees. Um, and uh, I'm a, as mentioned, I was a former Woody, Woody Woo myself, so um, somehow I, I end up doing this, this public policy work instead of some other things people do when they leave here. And uh, uh, going first, I mean, I, I could waste, not waste, I could spend all my time really talking about uh, what, what it means to have access to medicine and what, what it means when people don't have access to medicine, which I think is really what most of us are concerned about that, that work on this issue. Um, and uh, why it's important from a moral point of view to change the acceptance that people have that we just simply ration medicine for a generation. And then we have a very unequal access between North and South and things like that, between rich and poor, employed, unemployed, etc., from country to country, even in the North. And I could go through and I could explain all the, all the other factors that, that affect access to medicine other than just things like the prices of medicine, like medical infrastructure, uh, attitudes, uh, a variety of other things like that, refrigeration, a million other things. And I'm not going to do that because I'm already halfway through my presentation by time already. So <laughs> I'm going to talk about a very small thing, and that is just some work we do about how you think about uh, compensating people that, that, that innovate in medicines for AIDS drugs. And I'm going to start off with talking about some work we do in, right now with countries that, um, that, that are trying to uh, uh, set royalties, which are payments to innovators for, um, for AIDS drugs under compulsory licenses. Now, the first graph I want to start with, though, is just sort of a, 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 a setting the scene, and that is if you look at in the United States, for example, or globally, when you buy drugs, um, probably about 3% of what drug purchases are represent the cost of manufacturing the drugs and the cost of distributing the drugs in an efficient distribution system. And probably around 13% of what you're paying is going to finance research and development. Of that, 
about three goes toward old R&D and our old products. About 8% is toward R&D on products which are no better than existing products, the so-called copycat drugs. And only about 2% two, 2 goes on products which are both new and better than existing products. And about 84% is on something else. And, and that, that's like, uh, you know, that's lobbying profits, marketing inefficiencies and of a variety of kind of things. So it's currently a very inexpensive way that we have to finance R&D. And that's one thing I want you to think about, and I'll come back to this later. Now, I'm going to talk about royalties on compulsory licenses for AIDS drugs in developing countries. And I'm going to be very concise uh, and say that there's sort of a traditional approach which is that you try and have kind of a simple royalty, like 4%, 2%, 6%, something like that, on the sales of the generic product. And when you do that, the compensation the innovator relates to the cost of manufacturing, and it does not relate to the medical value of the innovation, and it does not relate to the ability to pay. And then we've developed a proposal for an alternative method of compensation, which is based upon the medical value of the innovation and it's, it relates to the capacity of people to pay. And this is the only table I'm going to show you in terms of the results. The first approach at the top, the first, the first couple of lines there, it shows you um, uh, the high income price for the product. The first one's Compavir. The second one's the, the most common uh, cocktail that, uh, uh, that everybody knows about, the so-called uh, Judge Cameron cocktail, uh, 3TC defrutory and, and, and Averapine. And then there's D4T and there's a, a, a how do I say this, a Fazerin, which, uh, which is a very important uh, drug for AIDS. Now, the, uh, the best generic price is sort of a proxy for the cost of manufacturing the product. And then the best, uh, the, best uh, the high income price is what uh, the price is essentially in the United States or in, mo you know, in some other countries. So those are sort of two parameters. is what's charged in the north and what you can buy it in the south from generic manufacturers for. Now, the UNDP method of setting royalties, I'm just going to sort of collapse it to just 4% of the best generic price. That's what they would propose you'd pay off the innovators. And so for a drug like D4T, which is very inexpensive to manufacture, you can manufacture for $30 a year, the royalty would be about $1.20 a year. <clears throat> Whereas a product like a Fosron, which is more expensive to manufacture, 10 times more expensive to manufacture, the royalty would be more like $30. Um, uh, if I got the calculations here right. Um, and then, uh, and then uh, so you can sort of see that in some ways the current system, one thing that, the, one thing that sort of uh, the UNDP kind of method does, it's simple and it gets you within about 4% of marginal cost. And so in some ways, it's the right thing to use, particularly for resource-constrained countries and have a great uh, bunch of economists on their faculty and things like that. I mean, it's, it's sort of, it's easy to do. And if you're in a low-income, poor country, it's simple. So that's, that's why people kind of like it. Now, if you're in other countries, there will be a different kind of discussion. What can Brazil pay, or should they pay, or what should Malaysia pay, or Thailand, or countries which have higher income? So the second method, we take the base is the high income price, which is a proxy for the therapeutic value of the product. And then we adjust the royalty in, uh, according to the relative capacity to pay, which is the lesser of the, of the, of the Northern, uh, the Northern royalty. It's, we, we start with the idea that the royalty we've sort of worked off here is 4% of the Northern price. 
adjusted back for either relative per capita income or relative per capita uh, income per, per HIV person, per infected person, because some people have very high infection rates. And so there you can see that the projected royalties, for example, for Kambavir, the first column, runs from about $100 in Korea to around $0.05 cents a year in Zambia, a country with low income and high infection rates. And then we have, at the very bottom, sort of averages for, the, uh, for these four tiers of countries in high income, income things. This was an attempt to get people in Geneva and people in different countries to sort of think systematically about the idea that compensation and pain for R&D is somehow rationally related to criteria such as the value of the invention, the therapeutic value of invention, or the capacity to pay. It's not important to me whether people think these are the right numbers. It's just conceptually that we're trying to get people to sort of think rationally about what they're trying to do. They're trying to get people to pay for R&D. They're trying to get people to buy R&D in a way. We're buying R&D. We're consumers. We're not buying drugs. The cost of the drugs are often trivial from a manufacturing point of view, but the cost of developing a drug may be pretty significant, big fixed cost. So we're trying to get people to think, for buying drugs, how do you do it? And so we like the idea, the characteristics such as ability to pay and the therapeutic benefit are what drives the amount of money that you're paying for that fixed cost. That's sort of the first, first idea. Now the second, I'm not going to go through this because I don't have time. This is the sort of old technology. This is a really a great presentation you're not going to see. Now, this is my, this is my, this is my final thing. This is a, a, the more radical idea, the big idea that we have, the thing that we're working on right now trying to build a consensus and a movement among, among NGOs, among businesses, amongst a lot of people to think about a completely different way of thinking about funding R&D. We want to, have to separate the market for research and development from the market for the products. So that once products are registered as drugs, they become commodities without any intellectual property. They become generic drugs, not 10 years or 20 years after they're registered, but immediately. Not only in Africa, but in the United States and in Canada and New Zealand, everywhere. That's sort of the idea people have, because we don't want to see rationing for medicines in the United States. We don't want to see it in England. We don't want to see it in Mexico. We don't want to see it in Africa. We don't want to see new inventions taking a generation before they're widely available to people to benefit from, before unemployed people or people with bad insurance programs or live in countries that don't put them in the formulary or people that have countries that have no insurance, except or don't have access to drugs. But we want to see R&D funded. So we have an idea that we have as a trade, uh, a trade framework an R&D treaty that that essentially benchmarks what every country has to contribute to research and development based upon the capacity to pay, based upon their GDP per capita, based upon their income. And, and that every country has to do something, whether it's Zambia or the United States or everybody in between, but it's rationally related in some ways to the capacity to do it. Now, what I'm going to show you is it's just like an implementation that was mapped out for the U.S. market. And this is the first approach I'm going to show you is called the prize fund approach. And this is not our favorite, but it's the easiest to understand. It's very similar to the current system in the sense that you have the patent system. Until you register the product, you've got patents, you've still got patents, and you just sort of basically do a compulsory license. You pay off all the innovators when they register the product, and you compensate them. And how you compensate them in this particular model is the U.S. puts up a half a percentage point of GDP, over $50 billion a year into a fund for innovation. And every product as it's used over a period of, say, five, seven years generates data on the therapeutic benefits of the product and usage, and that generates claims against the fund. And that's, a, that, that, that's an issue we're working on with some members of Congress who want to introduce this kind of an idea. 
And that would, that would be very much cheaper than the current system, going back to that initial graph, because prices would probably fall by $150 billion. You'd pay out 50 prices fall. You'd eliminate a lot of the sort of marketing end of things, a lot of the sort of inefficiency in the current system. You'd turn products into commodities early, but you'd pay big bucks to the innovators, but it'd be a, a different kind of system. And the second way, and then this is it, this is my last slide, is that, uh, is that uh, it's a more radical idea. Out of people that work at a lot of open source software thing, human genome thing, they have this idea that there's other business models that are better than the sort of uh, the current system with patents and secrecy and winner take all, which characterizes the current system. Right now, if you develop a new drug, you get a, a prize. It's a 20 year marketing monopoly. We proposed in the previous slide a prize which was a huge check from the government. A different way to think about it is, is that uh, the people are thinking about it is that there may be lots of different ways to think about drug development. You may think about these sort of more open source type models, collaborative research ventures, nonprofit development institutions, et cetera, or, or placing grants with, uh, you know, here there's like a lot of different ideas people about how you could fund R&D. Nobody really knows what's best. So the idea is you force employers to contribute money to re-R&D, and, and they don't, and, and they don't do it the, the R&D themselves. They give it to an intermediary, like a pension fund, invest in pension funds. It's an intermediary to invest in R&D, and that intermediary does the investment in the R&D process. They pick the projects, and you pick the intermediary. So in that sort of story, different, different theories and different competencies and different ideas, and these, th these, and these intermediaries compete with each other. So there's a competitive market of people that claim they're doing useful things on drug development. And that the, that's, sort of the, that's sort of the ultimate idea that you are actually directly buying R&D services from these intermediaries, but you, you can't be a free rider. You have to pay, but you get to pick who manages your money. There's a whole million other things, but there's sort of this work program to develop these new business models for funding innovation. Some involve patents, some don't involve patents. And there's a lot of talking back and forth with economists, businessmen, policy analysts and things like that, because they're trying to get back to what's basically a moral issue. Are we going to ration medicine to only those who can pay? Are we going to pit innovation versus access as some kind of Sophie's choice where you have to decide whether you like to have innovation or you like to have access? Or can we design a way of paying off the innovators, which is more rational in terms of capacity to pay and what you get back in terms of therapeutic innovation, plus more efficient that is morally not repugnant? Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, so our next panelist is um, Jeff Sturgeo. Thanks, Chris. Well, I, I'll just start out by observing. Jamie said he came from a small NGO. You might say I come from a large non-governmental organization. It's just a slightly different one. It, uh, it's a profit-making NGO. Um, and also, I'd like to start uh, where he ended. Um, and it's also the theme that, uh, that uh, Christina Paxson mentioned in her introduction. Uh, namely, uh, is it possible to find a way to preserve incentives for innovation while also extending access to medicines like HIV and AIDS and also for other conditions like TB, malaria, uh, and other health problems in the developing world without having to make a choice? And uh, our view is that it should be possible to do that. And I'll spend most of my, uh, my few minutes talking to you about some of the ways we've tried to do that. Um, but I'm reminded uh, that this is the kind of difficult uh, problem in global health that Kofi Annan once called in an arresting phrase a problem without a passport. 
Uh, and when we're faced with those kinds of problems, uh, certainly in the, the kind of um, discussions that you've been having yesterday and today, um, it's, uh, I think it's important to realize that uh, global health is really everybody's business, whether governments or non-governmental organizations, corporations, other actors. Um, if you consider for a moment that the Commission on Macroeconomics and Health found that uh, in, uh, the third, in the 48 poorest countries in the world uh, about two years ago, the average per capita expenditure on health was $13. Uh, uh, and one considers the millions of people who are affected by epidemic disease, by uh, childhood diseases that are preventable by vaccines that aren't getting to people who need them, uh, and that the incremental costs, according to the Commission, of, uh, of dealing with those problems were only 40 to $50 billion uh, additionally a year, uh, and that that's only 0.2% of the GNP of major donor countries. Uh, it suggests that there is probably more we could do collectively to solve some of these problems without passports. And what we've tried to do at Merck is to work with partners to establish common ground to define and work together on sustainable solutions to some of these problems. Um, and we found that there are ways to make partnerships like this work. Um, it's in the interests of governments to do that um, because they obviously have an incentive to improve the health and well-being of their citizens uh, because of the direct connection between health and wealth in countries. Um, so if they've invested in health care, then that's money that uh, can be spent uh, rather than uh, caring for a population that's ill and doesn't have access to medicines and to other interventions, that money can be spent on education and transportation and other elements that will lead to economic prosperity. Um, businesses like mine have a powerful incentive to engage in these issues because we certainly want the medicines we develop to get to people who need them. Uh, and also the millions that we've spent at Merck to develop an HIV vaccine won't matter for much if we can't find ways to get the vaccine when we finally come up with one that's safe and effective to the people who need it. Uh, and also, uh, NGOs have a powerful incentive to in engage in partnerships for global health uh, because it's a way of, of gaining access to resources and expertise to which they might not otherwise have access uh, and through which they can extend uh, the, their ability to, uh, to accomplish even more good uh, for the constituencies that they're trying to help. So I think that those kinds of collaborations uh, are very important, and uh, I'd be glad to answer questions you have about the ways in which companies like Merck can engage in them. But let me just turn for the, uh, the next few minutes to some of the ways that we are uh, trying to help deal with the HIV-AIDS epidemic. Uh, and we do this in, in three ways. In addition to the partnerships that, uh, that I mentioned, uh, the first thing that we try to do is what we're best at, which is discovery and development of new medicines and vaccines. Uh, and uh, Merck has already discovered two HIV treatments, Crixivan and Stockrin, uh, one of which uh, Jamie mentioned in his uh, presentation of Favarens is the generic name. Uh, and in fact, uh, one thing I should point out is that that lowest generic price for a Favarens on the first uh, table he showed was actually Merck's price for a Favarens in the developing world, not a, uh, a generic price. Um, and in fact, that's one of the, uh, the ways that, uh, the second way that we help to make medicines more accessible, and that's to try to make them as affordable as we can. Uh, and we uh, implemented uh, a couple of years ago, actually three years ago, a pricing policy for our HIV medicines uh, in which we um, make them available in countries in the poorest countries and the countries that are hardest hit by HIV at prices at which we don't profit. 
so for Stockrin, for instance, the 600 milligram uh, tablet of Stockrin, that's one formulation. That's 95 cents a day or $346 a year. Uh, and for Crixivan, our protease inhibitor, it's $50 a month or $600 a year. Uh, and those prices are available in more than 60 countries. Um, in, those are countries that are either in the low human development index category or in the medium HDI category with HIV adult prevalence of 1% or greater. Uh, and then we have a, uh, an also very significantly discounted price in medium human development index countries that don't have uh, quite as high an HIV prevalence. Um, in addition, uh, you know, we realize that these, uh, even at those prices, uh, antiretrovirals are still beyond the reach of many governments and uh, individual patients in Africa and other parts of the developing world. Uh, and that's why we've tried to um, work very um, uh, in a number of partnerships uh, to help build capacity and to help people get access to these medicines uh, in those countries. Um, for example, I'll just spend a few minutes talking about one major initiative in Botswana that illustrates the importance of, of these partnerships. Uh, in Botswana, roughly two out of every five adults is infected with HIV. Uh, it's one of the countries that's, uh, that has um, the highest HIV prevalence in the world. And in Botswana, since July 2000, Merck has been working with the government uh, and with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in a partnership to fight AIDS through a comprehensive program of education, prevention, care, and treatment. Uh, both Merck and the Gates Foundation have each committed $50 million a year to this partnership over a five-year period. And in addition to that, Merck is donating uh, our two antiretrovirals um, for treatment uh, according to the treatment guidelines that the government has, has established. Uh, there's been significant progress over the last couple of years across um, the entire spectrum of prevention, education, care, and treatment, and we're starting to see significant numbers of people in Botswana gaining access to treatment. Um, I was just in, uh, in Haberone and Maun about 10 days ago, uh, and I was able to sit down with the uh, clinical team at the clinic in, in Maun, which is one of the dozen clinics that the government has established now, uh, to hear them talk about the experience they're having in uh, treating, in their case, about 1,400 patients. And in Haberone, there are another 5,500 at the Princess Marina Hospital. But all told, in Botswana, the, there are more than uh, 24,000 patients in the government's treatment program, uh, with nearly 15,000 already on treatment. Uh, and in the uh, private sector, there are probably another 6,000 people who are getting treatment in Botswana. Uh, in fact, the Princess Marina Hospital's clinic is, uh, with 5,500 patients, is actually the largest HIV clinic in the world, uh, according to what they, they told me. Uh, and um, while a lot remains to be done, uh, the number of patients is increasing every month, and the, uh, the program is probably the largest uh, treatment program in Africa right now. Um, that's just one part of, of what uh, the project is doing in Botswana because we're also helping to train nurses and pharmacists and, and uh, physicians to provide uh, primary health care as well as, uh, as antiretroviral care. We're working with, um, with NGOs to develop treatment uh, or uh, counseling centers and uh, coping centers for people living with HIV and AIDS. Uh, there are programs in HIV prevention, uh, and it really, as I said, covers the entire spectrum. Um, and it's, uh, it's encouraging to see the passion and the spirit uh, of people who are beginning finally to see that it is possible to do something about the epidemic as, uh, as dramatic as, it as its impact has been in, in Botswana. So let me just come back to uh, the theme of partnership in closing. 
Um, and again, another comment that Secretary General Kofi Annan has made in which he uh, said in a speech a couple of years ago that no company and no government can take on the challenge of AIDS alone. What's needed is a new approach to public health, combining all available resources, public and private, and using all opportunities, local and global. And what we've tried to do is to work in that spirit, to find new approaches that work, to build trust through cooperative action, and to harness the expertise and commitment of companies like Merck in the private sector, but also working with others in civil society to find innovative solutions to help the millions of people living with HIV and AIDS uh, who do not yet have adequate access to care and treatment today. So thank you. My name is Rachel Cohen. I'm with uh, Doctors Without Borders, Médecins Sans Frontières, or known as MSF. Um, for those that aren't familiar with MSF, we're an international medical humanitarian organization working in about 80 countries throughout the world to respond to various types of disasters, uh, including the HIV-AIDS epidemic. And um, I just wanted to say a couple of words about why it is that we're even engaged in a discussion about intellectual property, R&D, and uh, the whole range of issues being addressed today. Um, on this panel. The very simple answer to that is because our medical teams in the field at a certain point were increasingly frustrated over the past decade because the medicines that they needed to treat their patients simply weren't available. Sometimes they were too expensive, sometimes they were no longer effective, sometimes they didn't exist at all or were highly toxic because there has been so little innovation directed at the needs of people with diseases in developing countries over the last 30 years or so. The example of HIV, which is, you know, most of what I'll talk about today, but certainly not the only um, health issue that's affecting and, and claiming the lives of people in developing countries, is, however, the most probably extreme example of um, what happens when, um, as Jamie said, you're forced to have a sort of Sophie's Choice relationship to access versus innovation. Um, as people know, there's over 40 million people today living with HIV or AIDS. Uh, six million in the developing world are in urgent clinical need of antiretroviral therapy. That means they're sick enough to actually require the drugs that we've been talking about today. Um, and as everybody here, I think, well knows, antiretroviral therapy has uh, dramatically improved and extended the lives of people with HIV in wealthy countries and in places like Brazil where they're widely available. Um, one of the major problems, and although uh, it's not the only one, I think it's what we're focused on today, one of the major barriers to access over the past couple of years has very clearly been the price of the medicines. And uh, if, in case people haven't been following the debate very closely, I kind of wanted to go backwards and, and provide a framework or a context for the discussion we're having today very briefly. Um, about three years ago, the cost of antiretroviral therapy in developing countries was about $15,000 per person per year. Uh, today, a triple cocktail first-line regimen of, for example, D4T, 3TC, and Nivirapine is available for as little as $140 per person per year. That's a, a huge and, I think, unprecedented type of uh, price reduction in, 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 a, in such a short amount of time, and there's really been one reason for this, two reasons, I would say. The first, uh, generic competition, generic manufacturers from India and other key manufacturing countries have entered the market and, and had a huge effect, in fact, making uh, not just companies like Merck, but of course GlaxoSmithKline, Boringer Ingelheim, all of the other major producers, forcing them to drop their prices because they were in a fairly embarrassing situation where um, the medicines that they produced were, were so clearly, uh, there was sort of this grotesque disparity in access between the wealthy and the poor. 
So this debate has been characterized, and some people call it a caricature, but anyway, it's certainly been characterized as, a, as sort of a, a fundamental tension between patent rights on the one hand and patient rights on the other hand. That's certainly how we've experienced it. That's certainly how people with HIV have experienced this, this problem, that as long as we have to hold on to this, the notion that the sanctity of patents cannot be questioned, that, that patents are the only way to stimulate innovation, uh, that there will have to be this trade-off and people will not have access or their access will be severely limited. So the fact that the, the price drops happened, and this many, many different things contributed to this, the fact that the price drops happened actually has driven a huge number of major policy and operational uh, developments, which has completely transformed the landscape of AIDS treatment today. Just a few years ago, nobody was talking about the feasibility of antiretroviral therapy in developing countries. People were saying we must focus on prevention. That's the only way to curb the epidemic. This generation is lost. Well, as a medical humanitarian organization, for us, that was uh, a violation of our medical ethics. We had no choice but to treat our patients. We just had to find ways to make the drugs affordable and get them into the hands of the people who needed them. So a whole host of things since about, uh, I'm going to, you know, I start with the Durban AIDS Conference, the International AIDS Conference is Dur in Durban as sort of a turning point in this whole debate. But it's brought us through many huge policy developments that have shaped the way in which AIDS care and treatment is delivered and, and, and the way donors, in addition to national governments, have responded to the challenge. And one of the key dates in there you'll see is November 2001 when um, there was sort of this international consensus, finally after three or four years of quite uh, controversial debate, uh, that nothing in the WTO agreement on trade-related aspects of intellectual property or the famous TRIPS agreement, um, all WTO members unanimously adopted a declaration which said that nothing in this agreement should stand in the way of uh, the ability of countries and of individuals to protect public health and promote access to medicines for all. That was considered a, a huge milestone and unfortunately many of the gains or many of the sort of victories that we thought were going to be a result after Doha, that we thought were going to have a major impact after Doha, are slowly being peeled back, challenged, restricted, and so on. But I want to talk a bit about what it actually means to have access to affordable medicines. Today, uh, in about 40 different projects in 20 countries in Africa, Asia, Latin America, and Eastern Europe, uh, MSF is delivering antiretroviral therapy to about 12,000 people with HIV, and that, role, that number is increasing every month. We, I'm not going to go through the data, this is not a medical conference, but we uh, just wanted to put this there to basically say that our patients are doing for the most part extremely well, um, and we're seeing CD4 cells increase for people that know what that is. We're seeing people gain weight. We're seeing fewer opportunistic infections. We're seeing people return to their communities, uh, becoming productive members of their, of their families and societies again. And this has really been an incredible experience for us to witness as, a, as an organization that's relatively small, providing AIDS care and treatment on the, on the field. One of the major reasons that we've been able to scale up access in our own programs has been the availability of new fixed-dose combinations of medicines that um, that are available at the price that I cited earlier at $140 per person per year. Um, this is the combination of D4T, 3TC, and Nivirapine that Jamie mentioned that's most widely prescribed in our programs. About 50% of all of our patients today are on that, that regimen and 70% of newly enrolled patients are on that regimen. But it's available only from generic manufacturers because the, the, the IP rights, the intellectual property rights, the patents are held by three different companies. It's GlaxoSmithKline, Boringer, Ingelheim, and Bristol-Myers Squibb. But I don't really want to stop with the idea that if we just have one single regimen, 
one thing available for uh, for people with HIV, that that's the end of the that that's the end of the problem. For people that know anything about AIDS care and treatment, or, or know anything about about medicine in general, there is always inevitable resistance that develops to these medicines, and we are facing now in our programs a very a very huge challenge, which is that soon, uh, if not already, we're going to have to start people to sec on second line regimens or salvage regimens, is what some people are calling them, because we don't have a third line at this point, um, which brings us back to the problem of price. While we have a first-line regimen that's available for as little as about $200 per person per year, as soon as we have to switch a person to a second-line regimen because the treatment fails, we're looking at about five or $6,000 per person per, per year again. And there's really one fundamental reason that it's still so expensive, and that is because there's not generic competition driving the prices of those drugs down the way there was for, for first-line medicines. We're working to stimulate generic competition so that we can see those prices drop and we can make the medicines more widely available. But in the meantime, the brand name industry, the R&D-based industry, has not voluntarily dropped the prices of their drugs to a level that's affordable. And I think this is one thing to keep in mind when you think through the kinds of policy solutions that are, that are going to actually guarantee equitable and affordable access to medicines over the long term. It can't rely on a voluntary ad hoc system that relies on the goodwill of companies to do what's right. There has to be something uh, pushing them, forcing them to do it. One very uh, clear example of, um, and, and I think I want to pose the question back to Jeff and to others in, in, in the R&D-based industry, we're being told that, that what they do best is to discover and develop new new medicines. And so our question is really, will they deliver what clinicians and patients need today? Will they deliver affordable second-line medicines? Will they deliver pediatric formulations, which is which are very, very rare, especially in second-line medicines, because there are fewer than 500 children born with HIV every year in wealthy countries, whereas there's 2.5 million in wealthy countries. So we see with HIV a very different kind of scenario, whereas there is a huge amount of innovation happening, or I would say a significant amount of innovation happening for antiretrovirals, for in, uh, a lot of investment in vaccine research, and so on. We aren't necessarily going to be able to rely on that industry to provide the kinds of tools that we need in the field, a low-tech diagnostic tool to diagnose TB or to detect treatment fail failure that doesn't require a lot of sophisticated lab capacity, pediatric formulations of these medicines protease inhibitors that don't have to be refrigerated because we don't have the option of refrigerating medicines when we're working in Chiradzulu, Malawi, or in a number of different other resource-limited settings. So I think the question still needs an answer. Um, I don't necessarily feel it's, it's okay to rely solely on the R&D-based industry because we've, we've learned through a variety of different other experiences that, that when there's not a profit motive, there's no investment into research for certain diseases. Um, I know I'm running low on time and I have a lot more to get through, but I just wanted to say, because it's the, the main topic of the discussion today, that there is this widely held assertion that, that intellectual property protection, that, that patents are the only way or the most effective way to drive innovation. And some argue, as some have here, that the wide availability of generics will erode uh, the, the incentives to invest into R&D. Um, I want to suggest that there's very little evidence to support these assertions, and the final report of the UK Commission on Intellectual Property Rights said that all the evidence we've examined suggests that IP hardly plays any role at all in stimulating R&D, except for those diseases where there is a market in the developed world, a large market in the developed world. This is what we call the fatal imbalance. There's not necessarily the kind of uh, disease burden in wealthy countries that you see in developing countries. However, it's where, the, it's where the pharmaceutical market is. As people probably know, Africa represents about 1.3% of global pharmaceutical sales. 
And we've done a, a, a quick look, but not quick, we've actually invested four years of time and energy into trying to understand the problem because we are faced with a situation day after day with not having the kind of medicines we need to treat other diseases besides HIV. So I'm referring here to di neglected diseases like sleeping sickness, leishmaniasis, malaria, tuberculosis, a whole range of other diseases which don't attract the kind of investment that HIV does. We did a, a, an evaluation of uh, drug research and development over the past 25 years, which told us that of the rather more, roughly 1,400 drugs, new chemical entities brought to the market during that time period, just 13 were for tropical diseases, which represent about 12% of the global disease burden. And if you look more closely, some of those drugs that were brought to the market, the vast majority were reliant upon veterinary research, so it was sort of an accident that they found something that would actually be valuable to humans. Uh, a huge amount was um, Chinese, not a huge amount, actually, in this, in this chart is just one, Chinese pharmacopoeia, so traditional medicine, finding, in the case of malaria, a very important plant that treats uh, drug-resistant malaria. And then investments of the U.S. Army, uh, when they consider it to be a threat to the security of, of, of U.S. armed forces, of course, there's all kinds of investments into research and development. And in addition, as I said before, a whole range of other diseases, maybe not so neglected, but where there's not a huge market in, in the developed world to, to properly stimulate innovation. Jamie talked a little bit about the, um, uh, the question of how much of the innovation that we see today is actually representing a, a therapeutic advance, an actual increase in the therapeutic arsenal. And I think we have to look very carefully at, at some of the figures that you see here today, that 63% of the more than 2,000 products brought to the market during a 20-year period or 19-year period were, were Me Too products, so they represented little to no real therapeutic breakthrough. And, uh, and I think it's also, I expected Jamie to talk about this a little more, and maybe we can during the question and answer, um, that a huge amount of those drugs that were brought to the market were the result of, of heavy investments by the public sector, by the U.S. Uh, National Institutes of Health. Um, basically, the bottom line here is that what we've seen is uh, that the market has really failed to deliver the kind of medicines that people need in developing countries. But it's not just the market that's failed. Public policies have not sort of regressed the problem. They haven't addressed how to, get a, how to go about making sure that, 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 that the industry, which has a huge amount of capacity, a huge amount of expertise, delivers the kind of products that, that actually address global health needs. And I, I don't need to go into all of the different drugs that are out there that maybe aren't so medically essential, but which take up a huge amount of, of, of investment for things like erectile dysfunction or male pattern baldness or a range of other illnesses. So it's our feeling, again, as a medical humanitarian organization, that we really have to think carefully and strategically, creatively, and, 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 uh, and I think with an open mind about what kind of paradigm shift needs to happen in order to make sure that you don't have to compromise between access and innovation and that the kinds of policies you put in place to stimulate innovation are uh, are those that will actually guarantee access at the end. So we've looked at a lot of different possible solutions and come to the conclusion that there really is a need to have an alternative kind of framework, something along the lines, and Jamie's <coughs> talked about it in much more detail, but something along the lines of uh, an, a, a new approach, a new framework that would force countries to uh, define a needs-driven R&D agenda, to, to contribute to R&D for health. The U.S. does a, a good amount of this. Um, outline a clear rationale for, 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 for sharing the burden of R&D. Um, define appropriate funding and incentive mechanisms and, and a whole range of other things to make sure that uh, particularly that, that the research capacity in developing countries is strengthened because as long as we rely only on Western pharmaceutical companies to, to address the needs of poor people in, in developing countries, we're going to be, I think, caught in a fairly failed model. 
So I've taken way more time than I should have, and, uh, and I apologize for that. Just a final thought on um, the concept of intellectual property rights, which says that uh, the conferring of IP rights is an instrument of public policy, which should be designed so that the benefit to society, for instance, through the invention of a new drug or technology, outweighs the cost to society, for instance, the higher cost of a drug and the cost of administering the IP system. But describing them as IP rights should not be allowed to conceal the very real dilemmas raised by their application in developing countries, where the extra costs they impose may be at the expense of the necessities of life for poor people. Thanks very much. Thanks. I forgot to introduce you, but thank you very much. And Mike, you are I need you're these using the old, yeah. You know how to turn it on? I know how to turn Good. it on. Good. <laughs> uh, does this cause a microphone problem? I'm sure I can be heard, but not maybe by the television audience or whatever. Otherwise, I'm sure I can be heard. Uh, this conference is supposed to be about NGOs. It was NGOs that organized to do the lobbying, which led to the spread of patent rights, among other things, for pharmaceuticals, to all the nations of the world. Uh, if you want to read about that process, that NGO process, I would suggest a book by Michael Ryan, Knowledge Diplomacy. Uh, I'm going to use my few minutes to address the question, should we have uniform patent rights for, among other things, pharmaceutical products throughout the world, including the third world? And the answer I'm going to reach is no. I'll be able to present only the skeleton of my analysis, which will appear in a near-coming issue of the Journal of the World Economy. Uh, my approach is different from Jamie's. Uh, I'm essentially using the public finance axiom, an old tax is a good tax. Uh, so I'm assuming that we finance uh, pharmaceutical research and development through the patent system. Now, we're, we'll find at the end we probably need some alternative models, uh, but that will be the basis of my model. Uh, the model consists of both a demand side and a supply side. Uh, a little trouble here. Uh, basically, the idea is to use supply and demand analysis to estimate who benefits from a new drug entering a first world market and a third world market. And the, uh, what drives the research and development is this rectangle of quasi-rents, uh, roughly profits. The benefits to consumers during the period of monopoly patent protection is the triangle B1. Uh, eventually, when patents end, there's an, an additional benefit to consumers A1, and the producer's surplus is transformed into consumer surplus. Now, the assumption of my model is that firms engage in what economists would call Ramsey-Baumol-Bradford pricing. Bradford is David Bradford of the Woodrow Wilson School. Uh, because people are poor in third world nations, the demand curve is much lower lying than the demand curve in rich nations. And as a result of that, 
a rational firm with patents throughout the world will charge a relatively high price, say about $16 and a half per prescription in the first world, and in the uh, third world it will charge much less, uh, $6.50. If it does that, the lower price in the third world, as long as it is above marginal cost, does provide something to the recoupment of research and development costs. That is to say, it provides the quasi-rent rectangle H3. It will do that under patent protection. It will not provide that, that stimulus to research and development. If we assume that patents finance the R&D, uh, if there is no patent protection in the third world, and my question is, should there be? To address that, we need the supply side, too. And the supply side essentially says this. The horizontal axis are research and development outlays, and also quasi-rents, the payments from selling new products. On the vertical axis are the number of new chemical entities developed uh, and entering the market uh, after testing for a year. Uh, one, one of the supply side functions, the key supply side function, is the function that relates uh, the amount of research and development spent to the number of new chemical entities entering the world market uh, per year. There are, for good reasons, diminishing marginal returns in this relationship. Now, uh, the other side of this picture uh, is the benefits, they come from the demand side, that the producers realize from bringing, uh, new, and bringing new products onto the market and uh, realizing the quasar runs the yield. Uh, I have two curves here, Q1, a quasar rent curve, and Q2. The difference between them is that Q1 assumes there is no patent protection in the third world, and Q2 assumes that the third world demand, uh, those little rectangles before the H H3s, uh, the third world demand is roughly 20% of first world demand, which is roughly in accord with current uh, expenditures in first and third world uh, on pharmaceuticals. So uh, having patent protection matters. The equilibrium, uh, I'm looking at only one equilibrium which is better supported empirically rather than an alternative. Uh, it, it is called the rent, the virtuous rent-seeking equilibrium. The equilibrium without uh, third world patents is R1, where approximately 55 new chemical entities are brought onto the market in the average year. The equilibrium with a 20% addition from the third world is R2, where something on the order of 64 new chemical entities uh, enter the market. And so this kind of closes the model, and the rest of the difficult analytic part is doing a benefit-cost uh, analysis. Uh, basically, is it worth it to get those extra seven or eight new chemical entities? Uh, it's, it's quite complicated, but let me give you the equilibrium uh, result. Uh, the solid lines 
the solid lines are break-even curves. If the quasi-rent potential, the profit potential in the third world is 20% that of the rich, this is the break-even line for a given number of new chemical entities. Uh, impairment because the third world nations free run. Uh, I assume that with universal patent rights, we'll get 50 new chemical entities per year. Without universal patent rights, we'll get fewer new chemical entities. And this uh, curve traces the break-even point uh, for uh, given market size assumptions and given the impairment of the number of new chemical entities with free riding, with one additional assumption, an absolutely crucial assumption, uh, built into the model, you really cannot address this question sensibly unless you do something one normally doesn't do in benefit-cost analysis, and that is to ask, what is the marginal value the marginal utility of an extra dollar of income in the third world, and how does it compare to the marginal utility of income in the first world? Alfred Marshall, 120 years ago, proclaimed, and economists have more or less accepted it ever since, uh, the law of diminishing marginal utility of income. The marginal utility of income is higher for poor people than for rich people. Uh, this vertical dimension of my diagram takes that into account, uh, looking at the ratio of third world uh, divided by first world uh, income uh, utility. And that break-even curve says that uh, north, east of the curve, global welfare is higher with, with, with third world free riding, below the curve, global welfare is higher without uh, free riding, with universal patent rights, in other words. Then I examine alternative cases where the, uh, the third world quasi-rent uh, potential is 40% of the first world, and then a more extreme case where the poor world is 100%, and of course the extreme case is it's it's, the ratio is infinite, that is to say there's no use for the medicine in the first world, but abundant use in the third world. Those are our are, are, are racial orphan drugs. Uh, one more concept and I'll stop, because it's time. Uh, I've got a lot of things flying around here. The curve SR is an equilibrium curve which traces the locus of all the various equilibria for various ratios of third world demand to first world demand. Uh, and uh, what one sees is that when the, the third world is 20% of uh, the third world quasi-rent potential is 20% of the, the first world rich quasi-rent uh, potential, uh, the equilibrium point, assuming that diminishing returns relationship that I showed in my, my first, second graph, uh, assuming that diminishing returns relationship, uh, this is the overall uh, supply and demand equilibrium. And what we conclude is better to have the third world free ride, even if the marginal utility of income is the same in the 
third world as compared to the third world. You find the same thing when the poor world quasi-rent potential is 40%, only when the demand of the third world is very large relative to the demand in the first world do you find that uh, the equilibrium break-even is at point R, uh, and if the marginal utility of income is uh, in the third world versus first world is greater than a ratio of two or more, then again, global welfare is maximized having third world nations free ride, uh, but if it's less than two, a value judgment, a key value judgment, then you're better off having global uh, protection. Uh, the general conclusion I reached, therefore, and echoing what Rachel said, most are indeed by first world pharma companies is for first world diseases. And my analysis suggests that we should not require patent protection on those kinds uh, of pharmaceuticals. But if you extend this, this equilibrium curve, uh, eventually for diseases that have incidents, tropical diseases that have incidents only in the third world, now the case for patent protection becomes strong. Whether it's a sufficient case, whether demand in the third world is sufficient to induce patent-motivated research and development to solve tropical diseases is uncertain, but either that's the approach, patents uniquely applicable in the third world, only for third world diseases, that's one possible solution. The alternative is some kind of charity such as that which the Gates Foundation has been propagating. Thank you. Thanks. Um, I wanted to give the panelists a chance to respond to anything that others may have said that they maybe violently or didn't violently disagree with. But And then we can take some questions from the floor. So I didn't know whether. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to make a, a couple of points in response to what Rachel mentioned. Um, first, there are a lot of things that both Jamie and Rachel and Mike uh, talked about. I, you know, I certainly agree with, with much of what they said. Uh, but there are some points that I think it's important to, to raise. Uh, at one point, Rachel um, characterized the debate uh, over access to medicines in terms of patent rights versus patient rights. Uh, and I think uh, it's important to know, for instance, that in our case, um, with Stockton and Crixivan, the two antiretrovirals we have, if you just stay with Africa, there's only one country in Africa in which we have patents on both of those products. That's South Africa. Uh, and, uh, in fact, we make the products available there at very low prices uh, and have done for the last several years. So if people don't have access to those medicines in the rest of Africa, whatever the reason, it can't be because patents are an obstacle, because no patents exist in the rest of Africa. Uh, so I think that we, one, what we need to look at is what can be done to ensure that the resources are available uh, Certainly, the, the products have to be more affordable, and that's what we've tried to do over the last four, a few years, is to make them more affordable. Uh, but one has to look at what resources can be made available to ensure that there are public health programs in which people can get access to these medicines and to uh, the kinds of programs like uh, the ones that MSF has been running, like the one in Botswana that I mentioned, so that they can uh, have sustainable access and can actually we can actually see health improvement in the population. Um, also on, on that score, um, one of the points she made uh, was that uh, we can't depend on 
I think what she said was can't depend on the brand name industry to voluntarily drop their prices. Well, in fact, again, just to stay with, with Merck's uh, prices, because I know those best, um, MSF's own surveys of the prices of antiretrovirals show that Merck's prices are either cheaper than or comparable in price to any generic version that's available. Uh, so again, it's not a question of differences in prices, per se. Um, there has been tremendous change in that score, as the graph that uh, Rachel showed indicates. Uh, the question now is what can be done to make these products available and to provide the programs and the resources that will uh, enable people to get access to them. Um, one of the things that I think is encouraging is that in the last, uh, really within the last 18 months or so, uh, there are now billions of dollars available to help patients in developing countries get access to AIDS, TB, and malaria products. Um, the U.S. Uh, President's Emergency Program for AIDS Relief, the Global Fund, the World Bank, uh, the money that's available from those programs alone adds up to $22 billion over the next several years. So I think the picture is going to become, is going to look more encouraging because it will be possible to implement the public health interventions that are needed to get the products uh, to people who need them in a sustainable way. Uh, and then finally, I just wanted to make one point about um, uh, the comment that Rachel and, and Jamie and, and actually Mike all spoke about this, namely, what is the pattern of R&D on diseases in, in the developing world? And I just think one thing that's important to keep in mind is that uh, is to remember the global burden of disease. Uh, it's not all schistosomiasis, and as much as it's important to have uh, better therapies for diseases like that that affect people in developing countries, you know, the single biggest health problem in developing countries is cardiovascular disease. Uh, and nobody can say that there aren't plenty of medicines that are available for cardiovascular disease and a lot of research going on in that way. In fact, if one looks at the work that the WHO has done on the global burden of disease, um, in terms of disability-adjusted life years, developing countries are looking more like developed countries uh, in terms of the overall burden of disease. So that's important to keep in mind, and it is also um, important to keep in mind that companies uh, are doing work. For instance, in our case, we have in advanced clinical trials of a vaccine for human papillomavirus, uh, which is a major cause of cervical cancer, and that affects the developing world uh, severely, as well as the developed world. Uh, and also we have a vaccine for, uh, for rotavirus disease, and that vaccine uh, is one of our, will help with a condition that's one of the largest killers of children under the age of five in developing countries. Uh, not to mention, finally, that we have a, a significant program looking for an HIV vaccine. Uh, which will help uh, tens if not hundreds of millions of people if we are successful in finding one. So I'm just suggesting that one needs to balance uh, the perspective on these things. Clearly, um, if there need to be more incentives for doing work on, uh, on rare diseases, that's something that would be important. Um, but I, I just think that uh, it's important to take a look at the, the whole picture in, in considering what the most appropriate actions will be moving forward. Thanks, <coughs> Well, I, I, I do agree with Jeff that if, if, you, um, if, if you look at the uh, disease burden in developing countries, uh, um, 100 million diabetics, very high incidence of asthma, you have, uh, I think, what is about 80% of the disease burden in the, in the South is not infectious diseases. It's, it, you have pretty much the things that people suffer from in the North, plus in addition to that you have uh, certain tropical diseases which are not common here. So. It's it, it's not it's not as if people in, in in developing countries are sort of genetically different than the rest of us, so they don't they don't get cancer or they don't get diabetes or they don't get heart disease you know asthma or anything like that. They they get those things too. So any system you develop that relates to medicine should 
should work for everything. And, and I think that, uh, that that's, a, that's a point worth, worth pointing. I think that Rachel's point is that if you look at the patent system as a, a mechanism for financing innovation, uh, it does not work if the client population um, is poor. And, uh, you, you know, empirically, you don't see much uh, R&D being driven by the patent system for, for uh, diseases that afflict the poor. So some very important diseases which receive in almost no private sector research, whether it's Chagas disease or leishmaniasis or malaria or other things. And so I think her point and our point, too, is that, is that um, you have to, in thinking about research and development incentives and things like that, you have to make sure that, that um, there's some connection between public health priorities and what the research agenda does. Certainly, Jeff didn't really dispute this idea that the majority of investment that happens in the North by the, by the, by in the private sector right now by the patent system is, is for products that are not considered to be therapeutically better than existing products. And that's because if you... If you can work around a patent, for example, uh, to have a well, you, everyone's watching it on television now with 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 Viagra. But I mean, certainly um, Levitra is probably about the same as as as, as Viagra. And, but it's profitable to put it in the market, even though it's really probably about the same because it's a really huge market. And so they can engineer around narrowly around the Pfizer patents, and they'll have a product which pretty much just work, uses the same mechanism. And there's quite a bit that happens not just there, but in all sorts of areas of you know whether it's statins or blockers are all sorts of different areas. You see that. So right now you have a, a highly inefficient system even at the area of R&D. And I think also, I, I just want to keep coming back, very little of the turnover you spend actually goes to R&D at all, which is quite important. Now, the rationing that we talk about for drugs happens in the North. It's a problem in the North. It's a problem in the North. For, it, even in AIDS in the United States, there's waiting lists right now for the ADAP programs that the states run, which are, which are stretched to the financial limit. You have a lot of, uh, of insurance companies trying to make the, the most expensive new AIDS drugs very difficult to get. You have all kinds of restrictions on off-label use of all kinds of important therapies for severe illnesses. You have entire countries that governments provide uh, reimbursement for drugs that don't provide reimbursement for all kinds of drugs people use that are blockbusters here, like Singular, which is an asthma drug, which has uh, a lot of... Uh, use here, but it's not on the formula for several countries because because of the price. And so in the South, you just sort of see things really magnified. And um, um, so I think um, as you move forward, you have to ask yourself, we, we've done one thing for the last hundred years. For the next hundred years, things are really going to get much, 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 much more aggressive. I, I had a call the other day about a drug that cost $25,000 but not $25,000 a year. I was told it was $25,000 every two weeks. And I was asked, you know, what are we supposed to do about the price of that drug? So um, as, as we sort of move toward this sort of unsustainable increasing amount of our GDP going to, to pharmaceutical purchases and more and more painful and difficult decisions on rationing, we think we're asking people to, to make a break with the past and actually embrace a program to do what is not conceptually that difficult, which is to separate the market for the products to the market for R&D. So you move away. One of the very predictable core things is that, is that when you look at these demand curves, is people are not getting access to treatments in those things. They could be children. In the, the vaccine that Jeff just talked about for cervical cancer, the chart, that has to be taken when you're not sexually active. It's, so it's basically young girls are the targets for that, that vaccine. 
So when that vaccine is available, it should be available to every young child who can benefit from it. And it won't be, and it won't be because of disputes over the pricing. And that's true for drug after drug after drug and treatment after treatment after treatment. And it's because, it's because the system works okay for people that have the most money, and they have the most political power. And that's why we have a certain system. And we need to change the system so it works better for people that have less political power and have less money, which means we have to actually become part of the political process. Thank you. Yeah, I'm worried that we're taking up all of the discussion time with more, with more. But I just want to say a couple of quick, quick things. First of all, um, as Jeff knows, and as we've widely kind of um, acknowledged, Merck's products are in many ways uh, an exception to the rule when it comes to both pricing policies and also the, the patents. Um, I think it's. I'm always surprised when, when industry still maintains this idea that prices and patents don't have anything to do with access to medicines in developing countries. I think, you know, the rest of the world has reached a consensus that there, it is relevant uh, to access to medicines. So I'm always puzzled by that. But, um, but you just have to look at the second-line regimens to see what happens when nobody's paying attention to getting generic competition or to putting public pressure on companies to, to, to drop the prices of their drugs, which is why I tried to illustrate the problem we're faced now today if we have to switch a person from a first-line regimen in, a, in our HIV programs to a second-line regimen. Um, on the question of, of, uh, of whether or not patents matter, Jeff is referring here to a, a study that's been widely disseminated by the U.S. government and by industry that appeared in the Journal of the American Medical Association by Amir Adaran and, and others, um, which surveyed 53 African countries and looked at what was patented and what was not and, and came to the conclusion that there weren't many patents, so patents had nothing to do with why people didn't have access to medicines. We submitted a letter that was published to the JAMA which said in part that um, if you omit certain pieces of information, of course you can get that kind of conclusion from, from the data that, that, uh, that they presented. But if you look at other kinds of things like the relevance of the drugs that are patented or the places where the industry has chosen to patent them, you find, for example, that the combination of AZT and 3TC, which is the backbone of antiretroviral therapy in many developing countries, certainly was at the time the survey was, was produced, was patented in 37 of the 53 African countries that were surveyed. Um, and, and in general, the, this pieces of the most widely used regimen were patented in three-quarters of the countries, um, uh, representing 81 percent of Africa's AIDS burden at the time. This was, this was an article of, I think, 2001 or, or something like that. Um, the other key part of that survey is that it kind of excluded the case of South Africa, which has five million people living with HIV, the largest absolute number of people with HIV in the entire world, where 13 out of 15 drugs surveyed in that country were patent protected. So I would simply assert as the rest of the world has and as the U.S. itself did at the Doha WTO ministerial, that there actually is a link here between patents, prices, and access to medicines in developing countries. And uh, just one, two final things. One, on the issue of communicable versus non-communicable diseases, I'm happy to see Jeff and others now widely recognizing that, that, that tropical diseases, communicable diseases, are not the only thing that, that kills people in developing countries. But I would ask then why it is that, that the international pharmaceutical industry, during the Doha negotiations and during the most recent amendment, not an amendment, it's not yet an amendment, but during the most recent negotiations about production for export of medicines under compulsory license at the WTO level were specifically lobbying to keep out communicable diseases. They were specifically lobbying to have only AIDS, TB, malaria, and other epidemics of similar gravity. So if there's a recognition in industry that those are killing people, why on earth were they, were they fighting to keep them out of the kinds of agreements that are going to uh, hopefully make, um, make those medicines more widely, uh, at least more affordable, if not more widely available in poor countries? Um, on the issue of the 
um, the patentability of medicines in developing countries. I mean, I, I know for a fact that no amount of patent protection in southern Sudan, where thousands of people have African sleeping sickness, uh, is going to do anything to promote research and development. So you can patent as widely as you want. It will have no effect on research and development. So uh, for me, the issue is not whether a thing is patented or not. It's does the, does the market that you're supposedly innovating for have any purchasing power? That was the point I was trying to make in the presentation. As long as people don't represent a lucrative market, no R&D is going to happen. And it's because of that fact that you have to look at a different type of paradigm for stimulating R&D. Thanks. Ninety seconds echoing uh, Rachel. Uh, for the most part, those countries where patents on AIDS drugs were not taken out were countries uh, were incapable themselves of producing the drugs. So where do they get them? Well, the obvious sources might be those at which uh, where there was patent protection. Uh, if you look at the history of AIDS drug prices, you see that the first break came in Brazil. Brazil did not adopt the patent law until 1996 or 97. So most of the older AIDS drugs were already unpatented and therefore available generically in Brazil. The second break came from India, specifically from CIPLA of India, and it, India does not yet have drug patent protection. Uh, the thrust of my paper about universal patent protection is, what's the future going to be like? Thank you. Um, I, we have five minutes max for questions, but I'd love to take some. Um, yes? Hi. Um,
how are you addressing those issues of, of uh, monitoring of safe drug use and, and you know, containing the risk of, of resistance to these drugs? Well, resistance, development of resistance is to totally inevitable. So uh, we have to face it whether we like it or not. And no amount of, uh, of, of anything other than building quality programs and promoting adherence to those medicines is going to change or delay the onset of resistance. I think in the case of, of MSF, what we've really been moving toward is the use of fixed-dose combinations, which can be taken in the form of one pill twice a day. So most of our patients are taking one pill in the morning, one pill in the afternoon, and we have adherence rates that exceed about 90 percent, which, by the way, is significantly higher than in uh, the U.S. and San Francisco or New York or any other adherence studies that you'll see in wealthy settings. So um, we, we don't think there, there was at the very beginning of the whole debate about access to treatment in the developing world a lot of very racist and, and uh, repugnant things said by people like Andrew Natsios of USAID, which said Africans don't have a Western sense of time, so they won't be able to take their medicines properly. Well, in fact, as was in a New York Times article recently, adherence rates throughout the continent are proving to be much higher than in wealthy countries, and that's certainly the case in our program. So um, resistance is inevitable. Yes, we're concerned about it, and so we're doing everything possible to provide not only the simplest regimens that are available today on the world market, but also all kinds of one-on-one uh, -on -one group counseling, treatment literacy, treatment education, having rather than the approach to TB, which is sort of a public health approach that doesn't empower the patient to understand why they have to take their medicines properly and kind of does this coercive, directly observed therapy type of thing, we're really trying to build treatment literacy and make sure that people, um, people understand what's happening to their bodies. That's, I mean, that's the best way to promote adherence, to make sure people understand why they need to adhere to their medicine. Can I, can I just jump in on this other compliance issue? Is it, um, uh, an important thing in patent is uh, the issue of the, do they create barriers to following innovations? Innovations now, uh, there's a lot of feeling that uh, uh, the existing drugs could be used more effectively. There's certainly this, uh, the fact that you can get fixed dose combinations out of the Indian suppliers you can't buy from American suppliers is important. Um, um, there's other drugs in the U.S. like T20, for example, which is a really crappy delivery mechanism that a lot of people think it could, uh, firms have asked to sort of be able to work in the drugs so they could develop better uh, uh, delivery methods. Um, the lack of heat-stabilized heat, heat ritonavir in, in senses, the, the market's deterred because nobody else can really work in ritonavir except for Abbott. And so um, uh, if people really wanted to treat people in Africa for, for AIDS drugs, uh, they would be identifying research targets that were, de were designed to have uh, products that were heat stabilized, that were lots of fixed dose combinations. If there was questions about the quality of the, of the fixed dose combinations of the testing, which uh, Jeff has raised in other meetings, uh, there would be clinical trials. He'd be knocking those things out. They wouldn't be screwing around with it. They'd basically be on a war footing, and they'd be fixing these kind of problems. But we're now engaged in this endless bickering over, over stupid regulatory issues because it's perceived as a barrier to keep the Indians out of the market. And uh, it's just another way of sort of gaming on behalf of the, uh, the branded industry in those areas. Do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I, I might just make one comment. Just on the question about resistance, I agree with all the things Rachel said about that. And in fact, in the Botswana program, uh, just to give you one example, um, the government has set up a very extensive program of information education and communications so that the population at large is aware of how important it is to stay on therapy once they start. Uh, and obviously, there is monitoring in place for um, 
to ensure that uh, people remain undetectable and, and the probability of resistance uh, is held off for as long as possible. I, I just want to make one um, final observation, at least for me, uh, and one of the things I find most interesting about panels like this, they're always, uh, always stimulating, but I find people rebutting things I never said. <laughs> and, uh, and that certainly happened, uh, happened here. Um, I never said that patents and prices don't matter. Of course they do. Um, but what I was trying to just spell out is that one has to be careful about understanding exactly what the situation is and designing responses that, are, um, that really do reflect the reality of what's happening. But rather than go through uh, all of those, Jamie actually uh, told me what the pricing policy will be on a vaccine that doesn't yet exist, which is an interesting, <laughs> an interesting concept. But we can discuss that some other time. I just want to leave you with the thought that um, if what we share is an interest in ensuring that people who are, uh, are some of the poorest and most affected by uh, epidemic disease uh, can get access to the medicines they need so that they have a hope of uh, having uh, the kind of life that the rest of us take for granted, uh, then it seems to me that the best way forward, uh, and here I agree with one thing Jamie just said, is you know, to cease bickering about things and try to find ways to work together on the ground in developing countries to get the medicines that do exist to the people who need them. Uh, that's certainly what Merck uh, continues to try to do, uh, along with the research that we're doing into new medicines and vaccines. Uh, and we welcome uh, the opportunity to work with partners in the public sector, in the NGO community, uh, as well as in the private sector to try to make that uh, happen more and quicker and uh, really to help uh, the people who need the medicines that we can provide. I am afraid we have to stop, and we only have time for one question. I'm really sorry, but we have another group coming in at 4.30. Um, but I wanted to thank everybody for coming and for your attendance on, on such a nice day. So thank you.